Where are these words found? <clears throat> Speaking of priests who serve that which is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he is about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a ministry, the more excellent by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted upon better promises. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 verse 5, the writer there speaking of the tabernacle, and we can certainly extend that type to the temple and the temple worship and the service there. And uh, we don't, well certainly we can say Hebrews really explains a lot about that worship, but we don't know fully what that entails, why he's using that comparison until we go back to the Old Testament. So let's go back to 1 Kings 7, continue our lesson about the temple. We looked at chapter 6 last week, studying about the actual <clears throat> construction of the temple. And then this week we continue that, but we interrupt for a little bit about Solomon's palace itself, and then we'll continue with the rest of the building of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 7, the first 12 verses, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, uh, dealing with Solomon's palace and all that is therein. But let's look at a few verses there before we get into the temple part. 1 Kings 7 verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits, and the breadth thereof 50 cubits. The height thirty cubits upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. And you will notice as we continue reading here, some of the materials that he's going to highlight are some of the same type materials that we used in the building of the temple. You'll see the wood, the cedar wood, and the fir wood, and uh, great and costly stones mentioned. As we continue there, verse uh, uh, let's go down to verse 4. There were beams in three rows. A window was over against a window in, a, in three ranks. And let's skip on down to verse 6. You'll see that uh, what it seems to indicate here is that there's several individual buildings that might make up what you would call the palace complex. Uh, several buildings and each has a different function. Verse uh, 6, we have the porch or the hall of pillars. The length thereof was 50 cubits, the breadth 30 cubits. Verse 7, the hall of the throne where he was to make judgment. Verse 8, his house where he was to dwell, the other court within the porch, was of like work. And he also appears to have a house for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife uh, that's assigned to her as well. Verse 9, these, all these were of costly stones, even of hewn stones, according to measure sawed with saws, within and without, from the foundation to the coping, so the outside unto the great court. And the foundation was of great, of cost, great and costly stones as well. And uh, again, uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on Solomon's palace, but just get the idea that we're talking about different buildings that appear to make up a larger complex that would uh, each have their different functions and certainly made up of materials that seem to be a lot like what is made up in the temple. The great and costly stones, the, the exquisite wood that he would use, 
as well. And it took 13 years in, in building Solomon's palace. Verse 13. Now we're back to the temple at this point. Back to the temple and we continue what we, where we left off last week. We're introduced to a person named, I'm going to call him Huram. Some of your versions may call it Hiram and probably more accurately spelled H-U-R-A-M, Huram. And he is out of Tyre. What does he do, or why is Solomon bringing Hiram, I'll call him, to Jerusalem? Craftsmanship. His craftsmanship. Apparently he has craftsmanship like no other. We've seen the, the details and the construction and the type of stones that they hewed out of the rock, even doing it in the mountain and bringing it to the place ready to be set in place. That in and of itself is a feat that I can't even comprehend. And then the wood and the engravings on the wood and, and the inside the temple, the over, all this is overlaid with gold. Now we have a different function that has come uh, to our mind here that's highlighted. That in verse 14, this gentleman was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill, and work all works in brass. He came to King Solomon, wrought all his work, for he fashioned, and begins in verse 15, talking about the pillars that he would make, the pillars of brass. Some of your versions may call it bronze. Uh, you think about copper as a raw material that that needs to be blended with an, uh, as an alloy uh, in many cases to create it uh, or make it where it's less corrosive and, or subject to corrosion. Verse 15, he made two pillars of brass, 18 cubits apiece. These are 27 feet high. Think about, and we'll look at a picture here in just a moment, but as you would enter, as a priest would enter the temple, you've got two very, very large columns on either side as you would go in. And these pillars is what he discusses here that are made, not just regular pillows, pillars that are fluted all the way from top to the bottom. These have engravings and work on them that would be equaled nowhere. In verse 16, he made two capitals of molten brass to set upon the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits. The height of the other was five. You see the large... Uh, way that they're made to, to be very large. There were nets of checker work, verse 17, wreaths of chain work, for the capitals were upon top of the pillars. Seven for the one capital, seven for the other. He made the pillars, and there were two rows round about upon one network to cover the capitals. Now let's go on down to verse, uh, verse 21. He set up pillars at the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar, and called the name thereof Jachin, which indicates to us that that means he shall establish, the meaning of that word. Jacob is he shall establish, referring to God. Then he set up the other pillar on the left, and he called the name of that one Boaz, which means in it is strength. Upon the top of the pillars was the lily work, so the work of the pillars was finished. And I get the idea that these pillars, again, are not your ordinary pillars pillars that you would find at, at Home Depot. These are pillars that are made, it, it's, it's like Solomon sat down with Haram and said, okay, I want you to build this and spare no expense. 
Build it as elaborate as possible. Cost is not a, not a factor. Time is not a factor. Build it, do whatever it takes. And so he did. So you see, these are the kind of pillars that, that are used for the temple. Again, we're seeing pictures of things that are full of glory and splendor. As we continue, verse, uh, well, well, let me ask you this as we, uh, before we get into verse 23. If you could set a price tag on, on what Hiram is doing here, and we'll see more of it. We haven't seen all of it yet. We've seen in the previous weeks the cost of materials, just an estimate of the gold. We didn't estimate silver and, and brass and, and jewels and things like that. You remember when we did that? We didn't even include all that. All that's materials. And you know, perhaps, that when you build, you have materials, and then you have labor cost and overhead on top of all that. Think about all the, the value of what this man is doing for the temple as we continue. Verse 23, he made the molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim. So this molten sea is aligned with what we've seen from this temple being larger than the tabernacle. The, the laver of the tabernacle is what we used to refer to. Now we see the molten sea. It's 15 feet in diameter. It's a very large pool of water. And we'll see more about that in just a minute. 15 feet in diameter. Verse 24, under the brim of it round about there were knops or gourds which did compass it for ten cubits, compassing the sea round about, and the gourds were in two rows, cast when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen. These oxen had three in one direction, three in another, three in the north, south, east, and west, facing those directions. And the molten sea was, as it were, set upon their backs with their rear parts inward. Verse 26, it was a handbreadth thick. That's about three inches, three to four inches thick, solid. And brim thereof was wrought with the light, or wrought like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths. And this would be, depending on how you rate baths, that measurement, this would be at least 12,000 gallons. Could be as much as 15,000. The bath is one of those measurements that's tossed around and nobody knows exactly how much it was. But it's at least 12,000 gallons. So this is a very large pool of water <clears throat> that is to be used in the temple service. Now we pause here for just a minute. Let's go over to our parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 4, verse 6. And all of this water, what is it going to be used for? Aren't you asking yourself the question, what is this used for? 2 Chronicles 4 verse 6 tells us what two primary purposes does, does, is this water going to have? The priests are to wash. They're to wash their feet, wash their hands and their feet before they go in. And then what's the other? Okay, the sacrifices that they offer, 
uh, or to be washed as well, we'll keep your finger here and let's go back to the book of Exodus. See a little bit more detail about this. In the book of Exodus chapter 30 at verse 17, Exodus 30 verse 17, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Thou shalt make a labor of brass, the base thereof of brass, whereat to wash, and thou shalt put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. And notice this, verse 19, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, and if they do not do that, what happens? They die. So this is a very important point to be made, the cleansing, the washing of water needs to be done. It's not merely a physical washing. Get that. We've talked about that over and over. It's not merely a physical washing. Yes, it is washing, but they're following God's command, which makes it a spiritual command as well, doesn't it? Now let's continue in verse 20. They, when they go out of the, or go into the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire. Now let's also go over to Leviticus and see what the other water that we're going to see in just a moment is used for. In Leviticus 1, the, we're looking at the uh, different basins of brass made. There were 10 of those, as we'll read in just a minute. But first, let's go to Leviticus 1, verse 9. And uh, he speaks of the sacrifice itself. It's Inwards and its legs shall he wash with water. The priest shall burn the whole on the altar for a burnt offering and an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Then skip down to verse 13. But the inwards and the legs shall he wash with water, and the priest shall offer the whole and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So we go back to 1 Kings 7 now. And we're not seeing that explained so much, but these other verses have explained what is that water for? Well, it's for the priest to wash, and it's for the sacrifice itself to be washed uh, before being offered to God. That needs to be washed as well, sanctified, set apart, if you will. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 7. He made ten bases of brass, four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits the height thereof. So this is for water as well, but we have smaller basins of water that are going to be put on either side of the temple, five on one side, five on the other. Now let's catch up with our outline here for just a moment. We've seen the uh, skilled work of Hiram highlighted the pillars, and now we're, we've discussed the molten sea in verse 23 through 26, the size of it, what, it was, what its purpose was, and uh, now we're, verse 27 through about verse 39, we're going to look at these ten basins of bronze. It goes into a lot of detail about these because there's a lot of intricate work, craftsmanship that's used on these basins of water. First of all, keep in mind that they're mobile carts of water, five on each side of the temple. And this is where, if we understand correctly, that these are where the sacrifices themselves would be washed before they're offered. These, 
carts each are, are uh, what appears to be a six foot by six foot platform square top with a basin in that and each of these would hold about 250 gallons. So it's not something you would just <clears throat> push with your finger. It'd take a couple of men perhaps to push these around and these hold quite a, quite a bit of water as well. Now look, I want you to consider this picture we looked at last week here. Maybe this gives you a little bit of an idea, and I don't think really the, uh, I don't think this is really the scale. I think the molten sea would be a little bit, quite a bit larger than this in diameter. But if you look at what we just talked about, the molten sea, and you see those where they're placed upon, as it were, 12 oxen, three on each side on the backs of three oxen. And then you'll notice to your left just a little bit, there'll be five carts there of water. And there'll be five on the other side that the priest would use to wash their sacrifices, the offerings. And, and, the, and as we read earlier, the inward parts would be cut open and be washed. And uh, then they would be offered. By the way, as at this point, as you see the altar of sacrifice here on the right-hand side, there's not much said about the altar of sacrifice in our reading and not much even in our parallel passage either. And I, I kind of think, well, why do we not have more written about that for us to see? If we go to Second uh, Chronicles 4, verse 1, we see that it is mentioned just in one verse, it seems, this altar of sacrifice is 30 feet one way and 30 feet the other way. It's a 30-foot square. Quite a large place to offer sacrifice, isn't it? Think about how much, how many animal sacrifices could be put on that even in a day. A lot. This is, uh, this is going to be a busy place for the next several years. Busy place for offerings to God. So perhaps this will give you a little bit of an idea. And maybe while we're there at that picture, you might want to look at the, uh, the pillars. I'm, I'm not suggesting this is what it looks like. It's, I thought it was a pretty good uh, artist rendering of what it might have looked like. And you'll see where these pillars are placed there before you would go into the temple. Of course, this is a cross-section of the temple itself. Now let's continue our reading here, 1 Kings chapter 7. Let's go on down to about verse uh, 31. 1 Kings 7 verse 31, the mouth of it within the capital and above was a cubit, and the mouth thereof was round after the work of a pedestal, a cubit and a half, and also upon the mouth of it were gravings, and their panels were four square, not round. And the four panels, or four wheels, were underneath the panels. Now let's skip on down a couple of verses here to about verse 34. There were four supports at the four corners of each base. The undersetters or the, the supports thereof were of the base itself. In the top of the base there was a round compass, half a cubit high. And on the top of the base the stays thereof, the panels thereof were the same. Now we're going to get into just a little bit more detail here for just a moment. So stay with me. And there is a reason I want to highlight some of these details, which will come to light here in just a moment as we get to the end of the chapter. 
Verse 36, on the plates of the stays thereof, on the panels thereof, he graved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths round about. After this manner, he made the ten bases. All of them had one casting, one measure, one form. And he made ten lavers of brass, and one laver contained forty baths. Every laver was four cubits. And this is that idea of the square, the each cart or basin would, would be a six-foot square. Verse 39, he set the bases, five on the right side, five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea, the molten sea, on the right side of the house eastward. So this would be like on the southeast side of the, of the temple. <coughs> now as we summarize what work Hiram did, or Haram did, in verse 40, he made the labors, the shovels, the basins, he made an end of doing all the work that he, was wrought, that, was, that he wrought for King Solomon in the house. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were upon the pillars, and the ten bases and the ten lavers on the bases and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pots, the shovels, the basins, even all these vessels which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of the Lord were burnished brass. And to begin to wonder, again, we'll go back and think about the value of what work he's doing. And I'm sure he had many helpers that, that helped him as well. Put a price tag on it. I'm not going to put a price tag on it, but just put a price tag on it. We've already seen the cost of materials, just of gold, how much that was. Now, how did they do all this in verse 46 and 47? How did they make this material, this brass, to, for Huram to work in? Verse 46 in the plain of the Jordan did the king cast them, and the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan, and Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because of what reason? There was so much that it could not be counted. Remember that as well. Stick that in your mind, as well as the details we've seen about their work. So much that it could not even be counted. Verse 47. So now let's summarize this particular part of the temple in the rest of the verses here. And we're going to go ahead and finish the chapter. But I want to make a greater and broader couple of uh, applications to what we've seen last week and this week as well and tie these together. To understand a little bit better what we're seeing, verse 48, Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the table, whereupon the showbread was of gold and the candlesticks, five on the right, five on the left, of pure gold and the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold and the cups and the snuffers, the basins, the spoons, the fire pans of pure gold, the hinges for both the doors of the inner house for the most holy place. And for the doors of the house of the temple of gold. 
So was finished all the work that Solomon had to do for the temple. And we add to the end of that, the last verse, all of the things that David, his father, had set aside and dedicated to be used in the temple, was that forgotten about? Did he forget about that? No. Verse 51 says, all those things that David, his father, had dedicated, these are brought now into the temple to be used as well. Any comments or thoughts before we get into some application? I have one back here. It just says that everything David supplied was put in the treasuries. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound to me like they used all of that. Maybe, maybe not. Certainly not all at one time. I think a lot of it would be used as, uh, as need be, as it would come to be needed or if something is not working right or broken or whatever uh, I'm sure there was a storehouse of extras and spares to be used perhaps why <clears throat> as we look at all this detail and primarily in this chapter we're looking at the details of the brass that was used in the temple We've, we've already made the large structure and the walls and the inner, inner part. We did that last week. But now this week we're doing a lot of uh, really elaborate decorating, if you will, on the outside, on the outside of the temple area. Now why would so much detail be given about these things? As I told you earlier, as I read this, I'm... I'm longing to hear more about the altar of sacrifice. I'm not real sure, but Jeremiah 52 has something to say, I, I believe, about this. It makes quite a statement. If you recall, Jeremiah spoke to the people and he told the people why they're going into captivity. And at the end of the book of Jeremiah... It almost seems as if as the Babylonians have come in and they're ready to burn the, the temple and the surroundings with fire, it's almost as if Jeremiah is sitting there in the, at the edge of the temple and watching all of these things being taken apart one by one, carried off to Babylon. Jeremiah, verse 52, let's begin at verse 17. Jeremiah 52, verse 17, I want you to notice something here. The pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord, and the bases and the brazen sea that were in the house of the Lord, did the Chaldeans break in pieces, and carried all the brass of them to Babylon, the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, the spoons, the vessels of brass, Wherewith they ministered, took they away, and the cups, and the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the candlesticks, the spoons, and the bowls, that which was of gold and gold, and that which was of silver and silver, the captain of the guard took away, took away to Babylon. The two pillars. Did we read about two pillars? Verse 20, Jeremiah 52, verse 20. The two pillars that we just read about, 
They were taken away to Babylon, the one sea, the molten sea, the twelve brazen bulls that were under the sea, which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the brass, all of these vessels was without weight. Means they couldn't count it. We just read that a moment ago as well, didn't we? There's so much that Solomon, it was said that he could not count it all. It's almost as if Jeremiah cut that right out of 1 Kings 7 and pasted it right here, isn't it? It's an exact description of what we see in 1 Kings 7. So let's look at it this way. We see all the details of the craftsmanship of Haram. And we see all these details that Jeremiah mentions here almost 400 years later. But what's happening to it? It's being chopped up and carried away to Babylon. All these details. Jeremiah knows all these details. Now what I want to do is make a connection here. Why does 1 Kings 7 have all these details? Jeremiah 52 have all these details. There's something in between there that I think we need to understand, and that is why were these things being carried away in the first place? Would they have been chopped up, carried away? Had the people been obedient? Had they walked in the ways that God had told them to. You remember he warned Solomon, 1 Kings 3 and chapter 9 as well, walk in my ways, walk in my statutes. He even reminded him again by an angel or a prophet last week, 1 Kings 6, walk in my ways, walk in obedience. So I'm telling you, when I see something like all these details we've read tonight, and I go back to Jeremiah 20, or 52 rather, and I see these details mentioned again, it tells me that there is a problem. And the problem that occurred between the two is the sin, especially the sin of what? Idolatry. All this work that Haram is doing, all this elaborate material and craftsmanship and all the glory and the splendor in the temple and outside the temple cannot be comprehended by the human mind, even though made by human hands. It cannot be comprehended. But as we talked about last week, is this temple going to last forever? It lasted almost 400 years, and sin entered in, and now it's being carried away. Now let's go back to our thoughts here as we look again at, at 1 Kings 7 in a broad application. Any comments, by the way, as we pause there for just a minute? Let me catch up on the outline here just, uh, well, there we go. Verse 40 through 47, this is uh, Haram's 
work summarized here. The vessels of gold mentioned. The building is finished. Any other thoughts here before we make a couple of more broad applications here? Yes. Got one over here. Just briefly, I, I see how much detail and how much beauty was put into the temple for the purpose of God dwelling in it, and then uh, how it's destroyed when, when the people sinned, um, and then we draw that uh, the same kind of parallel with how our, our bodies are supposed to be God's temples, and how much we should be you know, doing in order to be holy, to be set apart so that he can dwell within us. Um, I, I just I, I see that as an interesting parallel there. The temple is used in several symbolic ways in the New Testament, in our bodies, uh, the church, and so forth. As we look at the last two weeks, chapter 6 and chapter 7, we've seen a lot of materials used, a lot of costly materials a lot of pictures of valuable items, very valuable items. Why, does, why do we see these valuable items mentioned and highlighted? Why is it important for us to see that? Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. We made a point last week about the cherubim. The cherubim guarded the way back to the tree of life. Remember that? The cherubim guarded the way back to the tree of life. And God in the temple is giving us a picture of what is required to get back to him. Remember those cherubim guarded in the most holy place. And our picture is getting back to heaven. And that's what the temple is, a picture of us getting back in the presence of God. That's what we yearn for and long for. And in order to do that, Revelation 21, beginning at verse 18, we have here described a holy city that's come down out of heaven, New Jerusalem, verse, from verse 2. Revelation 21, verse 2 indicates that it's the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride. And then let's pick up verse 18, the building of the wall. Thereof was jasper. The city was pure gold, likened to pure glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Does that mean anything to you? Is that more interesting to you than what we saw in 1 Kings 6 or, and 7? Is that more interesting? It, it is, isn't it? Why is that? Because it's a picture of what? It's a picture of heaven to us, isn't it? 
What terms is he using to explain to us the glory and the splendor of heaven? Precious things. Precious physical things. Just like a parable taking us from the known to the unknown. He's using these things to show us the glory and splendor of heaven. And that's the same thing I would submit to you that we've seen in 1 Kings 6 and 7. That's the same thing that he's showing us by the temple. The value, the precious nature of it. After all, that is a copy and a shadow, as we saw early. That is a copy and the shadow of things to come. As we continue, verse uh, 21, the 12 gates were of 12 pearls. Each one of the several gates was of one pearl. You ever seen a pearl big enough to make a gate out of? And the street of the city was pure gold. As it were transparent glass. We've got a lot of songs that talk about that, don't we? The streets of the city was pure. The street of the city was pure gold as transparent glass. He's giving us physical terms to help us to understand spiritual things, isn't he? It's the exact same thing that 1 Kings is doing for us as well. Giving us a picture of what it is to be, to get back into the presence of God. So we shouldn't find it really amazing or or, uh, odd that even the book of Revelation is still using physical terms to explain to us and take us to the glory in the presence of God. Now one more thing as we look, go back to 1 Kings and 1 Kings 6 and 7. You may recall from previous study that as we looked at uh, the dimensions of the temple, we see a, a temple that's much more glorious and full of splendor than that temple, or the tabernacle rather. And we come along to a prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 42. Ezekiel has a picture of us in the last section of the book of Ezekiel. There is a long description of a city and temple that has measurements and things that are beyond our comprehension if we think in terms of the temple of Solomon. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our imagination. Ezekiel 42, verse 15. Ezekiel is speaking to the captives in Babylon, those that have perhaps lost hope, and this is a message to those that have lost hope that there's more. Yes, the tabernacle has been destroyed, and there's basically nothing left of Jerusalem, but there is hope. Ezekiel gives them that hope through language and terms that transcend our understanding. And let's begin at verse 15. Now when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forth by the way of the gate, which prospect is toward the east, and measured it round about. He measured all the east with a measuring reed. And if we look at chapter 40, verse 5 of this chapter, of this book, 
It seems to be that the reed is about 10 feet long. So keep that in mind. A reed is about 10 feet long. Some of your versions will use the word cubit, which I think is perhaps found only in the English Standard Version. Uh, but the reed here, 10 feet, 10 feet long, verse 17, he measured on the north side 500 reeds with a measuring reed round about. He measured on the south 500 reeds. He measured on the west 500 reeds with a measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. And it had a wall round about, length, length 500, the breadth 500, to make a separation between that which is holy and that which is common. So let's think about this in terms of physical measurements here. Ezekiel's temple here, as compared to that of Moses' tabernacle, which was about 30 feet by 60 feet, if you count just the very outside where they would include the laver and the sea, it's about 30 foot by 60 foot. Solomon's temple we've seen, if you include that particular measurement, it's about 60 by 120. Ezekiel's temple that he presents to them is an amazing 5,000 feet by 5,000 feet. Brethren, we're talking about almost a mile square for this is no literal temple that Ezekiel is speaking of. What is it that Ezekiel is trying to get them to see? And what is it he's referring to? Is he talking about a physical temple? No. I think he's talking about the church. The church that Christ died for. That is the temple. And this temple has an amazing measurement if you were to read this to the Israelites in captivity, they would go, wow, 5,000 feet by 5,000 feet? That's far beyond the measurement of the Solomon's temple. Well, let's keep that in mind. Revelation chapter 21, once again. Let's go back. Revelation 21, verse 16. Or rather, yeah, verse 16. The city lieth four square, the length thereof is great as the breadth. He measured the city 12,000 furlongs. Furlong, if it's taken to be 600 feet. This city, that, this holy city that came down out of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, this new city, the new Jerusalem bride of Christ, if we extend that measurement, 12,000 furlongs is about 1,378 miles. Revelation 21, verse 16 and 17 says this city is not only 1,300 miles this way, 1,300 miles this way, but 1,300 miles high. It's a perfect cube. What else, not only is the, the measurement staggering, but what else have we seen that is a perfect cube in our study? The most holy place, and who abides in the most holy place? God. What a beautiful picture we have. Let me leave you with this idea. Let's always tie in the temple of Moses, or the temple of Solomon, 
with the New Testament and with the temple that we are to see coming down out of heaven someday in Revelation 21. Let's tie all those together. May we be in the presence of God someday. Thank you for the class.